0: Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I read through American Writers, as the title implies, about 100 pages at a time. In each episode, I give my thoughts, commentary, and feelings about the work. Um, This episode will be on Claude McKay's Home to Harlem, at least the first half of that novel. And we'll be continuing our examination of Harlem Renaissance writers. That music that I used to start this episode is not really thematically connected to the book directly. However, I thought it'd be useful to put it in in an episode about the Harlem Renaissance. That is Lift Every Voice and Sing, which was originally written by James Weldon Johnson, uh, a famous uh, African-American writer who I'll be looking at in uh, the future. Uh, It was put to music a few years after it was written. I think it was written in 1899. Um, and it has since become, been called the Negro National Anthem from time to time. Um, so it, it predates the Harlem Renaissance a little bit, but I think it fits into the, 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 the theme in the, of, of this series anyways. Anyways, we will be looking at Claude McKay's Home to Harlem. So let's talk about Claude McKay first. This is our first time meeting him. Claude McKay was born in Jamaica in 1889. He was introduced to literature through an English teacher working in Jamaica as a folklorist. And I'm hoping to get to some Caribbean folklore writing eventually, Uh, Lafacadio Hearn perhaps, or Zora Neale Hurston. He started writing poetry in the local dialect that he was familiar with. In 1912, he moved to the United States part of a rather large migration from the Caribbean that would really have a major impact on African-American arts, politics and, and culture. We have, don't have to look any farther than the Marcus Garvey movement. Uh, Marcus Garvey himself was, was a Jamaican migrant. Uh, many other radicals and artists and thinkers came from the Caribbean and, and settled in the United States becoming a really important part of, of a black culture. He studied in the South before moving to New York City in 1914. He was married to a Jamaican immigrant like himself, but she left him while she was still pregnant and Claude McKay never married again. In the late 1910s, he lived in Harlem and he got involved in radical politics, working in both the Industrial Workers of the World, the Wobblies, and uh, at least communist politics. It's not really clear how much he was connected to the Communist Party. I believe he denied ever being a member of the Communist Party, but... You know, there's some doubt about that. Certainly he was involved in leftist politics. Let's put it at that. Um, He was critical of some elements of the left in the United States, particularly its racism. Um, We could maybe say he was criticizing the Communist Party on grounds of identity politics, uh, being too centered on, and not not so much was centered on class, but that it was explicitly ignoring the needs of African-Americans in the United States and not directly trying to organize them. After the Russian Revolution, he spent time in the Soviet Union. He was even able to testify before the Communist International in a way that wasn't flattering to the American left at all. So again, we see that he really wasn't, uh, I guess, a close uh, doctrinal ally of the American left or American communist. He he had an open mind or or, or a freer mind than that. And he was willing to criticize the left, especially on, on terms of race. He did not write his first novel until 1928, which that makes him pretty old, almost 40 years old before he wrote his novel. Uh, That's the novel we'll be looking at presently, Home to Harlem. Um, Home to Harlem, published in 1928, is about a deserter from the American army during World War I who returns to Harlem and lives a hedonistic life and also a life of great mobility going from job to job. He eventually leaves Harlem doing parts of trouble with women and he takes a job as a railroad chef while uh, as a railroad chef he doesn't quite give up his hedonistic lifestyle it just sort of moves to other places like Pittsburgh and Philadelphia but he does meet several important fig people in his life most importantly uh, an educated young man uh, who kind of introduces him to more radical politics and we'll get to that probably in the second episode of this of this series. As the novel goes on, he gets into some of his previous poor decisions come back to haunt him. Um, but there is sort of a happy ending to this. Uh, at the very opening chapters of the novel, he meets uh, a woman. Uh, he they have a a sexual relation, a one night stand, I guess. But uh, they both really were interested in each other. They just lost touch. Um, and by the end of the novel, he can find her finds her. And although his future is a bit dubious at the end of the novel, it is you know a bit of a happy ending. And it. Kind of is a, a nice wrapping up of, the, of this character story. What we get in this novel is a picture of the mobility of African-American urbanites in the years around World War I, both because of the war, uh, many people going to the war, and of course the Harlem Renaissance context is mobility itself as you know, one to two million African-Americans left the South and we're going mostly to northern cities to take up jobs or to flee Jim Crow or flee other problems in the South. So that kind of mobility of the war years is a theme in this novel. We also find their struggle to find a stable place and a stable. I guess. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of f- tripping over my words here. What I want to say, I was almost wanted to say identity, but it's not quite it. It's it's really how the color line limits their options, makes it more difficult for them to be as free as they'd like to be. Uh, Re helping like almost being complicit in reinforcement of bad habits. Um, I don't know. I, I don't quite know how, how we'll say that, but maybe I'll get a clearer idea as I go on with my comments about this. Um, we also see the difficulty of working environments that reinforced or even, especially in the case of the rail car, especially in the rail car job, you had reinforced and dependent on on racism of of the broader American society. So even when you have a, a job like the rail car, which is, provides some upper mobility for Some people and of course the brotherhood of sleeping car porters was one of the most important uh, black unions during the early 20th century despite that these jobs were typecast I guess is that the word Uh, for African-Americans and you know depended on racism and the hierarchy between uh, all whites and um, black people. Of course in in the cars black people are kind of pre-designed or pre-identified as servants of, of whites. So for today we're gonna to look at the first half of this book the first 11 chapters um, as as I made clear early on if you've been listening to this you know I do about 100 pages a day but that's rarely you know possible to do uh, so I kind of have to make choices from time to time um, this novel is like 180 pages so I had to split it somewhere and you know about the first 11 chapters gets you about halfway through the story anyways. Chapter one, going back home. Uh, As our novel opens, our hero, Jake, is working on a ship with some Arab sailors. He's working on the ship and griping about his time in France during World War I. He trained, he was worked up to fight, he wanted to fight the Germans, but instead was sent to work longshoreman duty in the French town of Brest. He is upset with his treatment, but mostly he's just so bored with his job and bored with the lack of opportunities to get his hands dirty in the war he decides to desert to London where he enjoys life Uh, the armistice in uh, November of 1918 brings a flood of soldiers back home both Americans and British and that uh, kind of I guess saturates the the situation there and he starts to miss Harlem and he decides to go back Um, specifically he took complaints about missing black women Uh, this is quote from the novel on page 142 of the library of america edition why did i ever enlist and come over here he asked himself why did i ever want to mix myself up with white folks war it ain't ever wasn't an any black folks affair blacks ain't even always such fool anyhow always thinking they've got something to do with white folks business so he decides to go back to to harlem to back to america but specifically to harlem chapter 2 arrival he leaves his ship and he had like $50, which he got was his pay for his time serving on the ship. It was he, he loses, I guess, his army pay uh, or whatever he didn't get previously because he was a deserter. But he does go, he is able to get some salary from working on the ship. So this is like his, his sign-off um, pay. He, uh, so it's not that much money, but it's enough for him to immediately go to Harlem and visit a cabaret. Now the cabaret is going to be one of the major... Um, settings in this novel Um, of course by this time this is this novel is set prohibition is already in place so this stuff is illegal and there is going to be this threat of the police in the novel but it's not a really serious threat and it's not a huge part this isn't a novel about prohibition access to alcohol is almost taken for granted by our characters um, he goes to he goes to visit a cabaret, and there he meets this, quote little brown girl quote. That's the, how he refers to her throughout the novel until he finds out her name near the end. She'll be a major figure in the novel, even though she's absent for most of it. They share some drinks, they do some flirting, and he kind of hints, well, I'll pay you uh, some money, and and she works him up to fifty dollars, which is all the money he has. Uh, eventually, they go back someplace and they have sex, and he leaves. They're very excited to be back in Harlem even though he's broke, he's in a good mood. He does think about the fact that he's broke for a moment, and then he digs into his pocket and finds that the $50 are back in it, back there with a note from the from the girl, and this le- makes him feel nice, and it, he learns that she's interested in him, and it kind of opens this door to this potential relationship, a relationship that's not going to be fulfilled until the final chapters of the, of the novel. In Chapter 3, we meet Jake's old friend Zeddy, who was also in service during the war. Of course, he meets him at another drinking establishment. Now much of the novel, as I said, is spent in such places. We also meet Aunt Hattie, a figurehead of Harlem, and her description is really nice. Aunt Hattie was renowned among the lowly of Harlem's black belt. It was a little basement joint, smoke-colored. And Aunt Hattie was weather-beaten, dark-brown, cheery-faced, with two rusty red teeth sticking together conspicuously out of her twisted, spread-away mouth. She cooked delicious food. Home-cooked food, they called it. None of the boys loafing around that section of Fifth Avenue would dream of going any other place for their poke chops. Aunt Hattie admired her new customers from the kitchen door, and he was quite filled, filled her sight. And when she went with the dishrag to wipe the oilcloth before setting down the coconut pile, she rubbed her breast against Jake's shoulder, and a sensual light gleamed in her aged, smoke-red eyes. The buddies talked of the days of Brest. Zeddy recalled the everlasting unloading and unloading of ships and the toting of lumber. The house of the Young Men's Christian Association overlooking the harbor, where colored soldiers were not wanted. The central Rue des Cimes and the point near the prefecture of Marine from where you could look down on the red lights of the Courtier Reservé, the fatal fights between black men and whites in the Maison Clos, the encounters between Apaches and white Americans, the French sailors that couldn't get the Yankee idea of armor and men, and the cemetery just beyond the old medieval gate of the town where he left his second best buddy. Um, so, you know, this description of this place and this, this woman feeds directly into uh, the, just the experience of the war. And now, of course, many... Black people did fight in the trenches. They did fight in the war. And there was one famous unit that got honored by the French government for their service. You know, the United States government wasn't providing those honors to black soldiers at the time. The army was still segregated, of course. And it wouldn't be desegregated until after World War II. But most of the African Americans who served were uh, given these kind of secondary jobs, service jobs, backline type work and what we see here is that this was something that was actively resented by these soldiers and in in Jake's case it causes him to desert so chapter four chapter four is called Congo Rose and this chapter begins with the singing of the praises of the location the Congo Rose and this is when he starts to look for his that girl that brown girl and he goes to this cabaret called the Baltimore where he met her before And instead, Jake finds a woman rose and he starts to chum with her. There's some really interesting masculinity in this passage as Jake is challenged by a woman who suggests that chacking up with a woman is an easy way for men to avoid their masculine responsibilities. And here's what she says to him. I've never been a sweet man yet. Never lived or this. Sorry, this is Jake saying this. I've never been a sweet man yet. Never lived off no woman and never will. I always works. I don't care what you do well, use my man, but hard work's no good for sweet love papa. This is, that's her response. So there's this uh, tension here, and we're going to find with some of his friends, I think it's Zeddy who has this problem too, that he, he ends up living with a woman who basically takes care of him, lets him shirk work, lets him get out of uh, doing some work, and there's this tension about, um, you know, what's it, what's it mean to be a real man? And this is a real struggle for a lot of our characters who are trying to find a place in this economy and I, they're mostly good people who want to work but so much of the economy is closed off to them and off to them and well this issue of work and where to find work and the problems that race plays in these people finding long-standing uh I guess, gainfully gainful employment is going to be explored in the next chapter. So I'll just jump to it. This chapter is called on the road again or on the job again. (laughs) Sorry, not on the road again, but on the job again. And we learn a little bit more about Rose and her attitude about this. Quote, the mulattress was charged with tireless activity and Jake was her big good slave. But her spirit lacked the charm and verve, the infectious joy of his little lost brown. He sometimes felt she had no spirit at all—that strange, elusive something that he felt in himself. Sometimes here, sometimes there, roaming away from him, going back to London, to Brest, La Havre, wandering to some of the unknown new part port, caught a moment by some romantic rhythm, color, face, passing through cabaret saloons, speakeasies, and returning to him. The little brown had something of that in her too. The night he had felt a reaching out, a marriage of spirits, but the mulattress was all a wonderful tissue of throbbing flesh. He had never once felt any of in her any tenderness or turmidity or aloofness. Now, this is a really interesting passage for me. Uh, Jake is kind of here fascinated with mobility and action, and the cabaret is a reflection of that. So he's always on the move. He's always on the move, whether it's from this job to that job. And finally, for much of the novel, he's working on the railroads, which is a job that literally moves him from place to place. And you know, in part, it, it might be try, him, Jake, trying to avoid responsibility. He's certainly not presented in the novel by McKay as the most responsible person. But, you know, there are opportunities for him to settle down and, and to, you know, such as with Rose. Um, but there is this tension and, and and mobility is going to be a big theme in this novel. And and, and what it means for these characters is, is much of what McKay is trying to say here. So anyways, Jake takes up work as a longshoreman. So again, we see he... He is looking for gainful employment. It's just he has a hard time keeping jobs and he sometimes uses various excuses to get out of it. Uh, we get to go explore actually another side of masculinity in this passage. Uh, he goes to work one day and after work he's approached by a white worker who informs him that he's stri- strike breaking, s- strike breaking, scabbing, right? Uh, a real no-no, uh, even for non-union men. And Jake explains to him, well, I'm not the kind of man who's going to scab, so I'm not going to work there anymore. And he asks, like, why wasn't there a picket line? I wouldn't have worked if I had known there was a strike going on. And the man says something like, well, the union didn't, isn't approving of this. So this is kind of like a wildcat strike. And Jake then quits. He he doesn't go back. But then he's asked, like, well, you can join the union, you know, and when the strike's over, maybe you can get a job here. And Jake backs away from that. He says, I don't want to be joining uh, unions, these white unions. And the the union man tries to explain that they're interracial unions, and it doesn't convince him. Um, So class, masculinity, and race are kind of all mixed up in this section, in this passage. Later, after Zetty, his friend scorns him for not being practical, he reminds him that white unions didn't want blacks joining anyways. And that guy was probably lying. And so why not scab? Why, why not, you know, take the job? Because it's not like, you know, if they win the strike, it's going to help you at all. It's, it's not your, your concern. So the color line here gets in the way of, of I guess, a class politics. And it in, in a more individualist way, it gets in the way of Jake's attempt to sort of settle down. Um, in the next chapter, we learn about Zeddy's frustrations over women. And it's all combined with race and gender and class issues as well. Um, I feel like I'm a college professor talking about race, class, and gender. But they really do intersect in this novel. I'm not just pushing intersexuality for its own sake. Where is this part? Oh yeah, here it is. It was no, It was true that no black belt beauty would ever call Zeddy my handsome brown. But there were sweet men of the belt more repulsive than he, that women would fight and murder each other for. Zeddy did not seem to possess any of that magic, that charms that hold women for a long time. All his attempts at homemaking had failed. The women left him when he could not furnish the cash to meet the bills. They never saw his wages, for it was gobbled up by his voracious passion for poker and crap games. Zeddy gambled in Harlem. He gambled with white men down on the piers, and he was always losing. Poor Zeddy. Can't catch a break. He finally meets a woman, though, Susie, who has a pretty high level of class consciousness herself. Quote, Susie's life of yellow complexity was surcharged with gin. There was whiskey and beers also at her sociable evenings, but gin was the drink of drinks. Except for herself, her parties were all male. Like so many of her sex, she had a congenital contempt for women. All male were her parties, and as yellow as she could make them. A lemon colored or paper brown pool room youngster from Harlem's Fifth Avenue or from Prince Street. A bellboy or railroad waiter or porter. Sometimes a chocolate who was quick, non discriminating lover and not remote of attitude like the pampered high browns. But chocolates were always a rarity among Susie's front roomful of gin lovers. Uh, so this shows the importance of, of the color line within the African American community and some of the sensitivities and tensions between people with uh, you know with lighter skin later in the chapter Jake gets to ponder uh, the gender line as well so through, through this part of this passage we really find these young men and women kind of exploring their their place and, and work income uh, relationships gender roles are all mixed up in here and it's really really fascinating and uh, there's probably a lot more we could say about this and dissect it almost line for line of what's being done here Chapter Seven is called Ready, Zeddy's Rise and Fall, and it it doesn't end his character, but it, for a while it kind of finishes with what McKay wants to say about him. It's not a long novel, and he doesn't have time to, to, you know, fully develop these life stories. Zeddy will come back, but for now, it's um, we kind of find out what happens to him. Our heroes go to Susie's uh, for one of her quote-unquote free love feasts. Um, it's not as it sounds, uh, but it is uh, one of these gatherings that the quote I just read is referring to. She's a party girl. They talk about the situation in Harlem, and Susie says she thinks that black men are spending too much time in Harlem. In fact, Jake later learns that Zeddie has been forbidden from Harlem night by Susie, which does seem a bit strange because Susie herself is one who likes to party and likes to drink, and, you know, she's describing her as a gin-loving party animal. But she forbids Zeddy from going out, and does this have a role with his dubious income source or the fact he's gambling as a punishment? Uh, It might be a little bit of all that. At some point later, Zeddy is out with the group and leaves Susie behind, and he gets riotlessly drunk. When he returns home, he finds all his belongings are out on the street. He concludes that there's no future loving black women, saying, black woman is hard luck. In Chapter 8, we have... uh, one of one of a couple uh, raids or police actions against the cabarets and saloons and bars of of Harlem. So Jake is still working on finding his lost brown at the Baltimore. Um, and something special about this place, which I noticed and I think is kind of interesting, is white men and women are at this bar. So. We're reminded at this point that it's not just music that's being interracial. It's not just that both whites and blacks are playing, for instance, jazz, um, that these public spaces in Harlem are attracting a white client base. So where is it? Yeah, so one night... Jake noticed three young white men, clean-shaven, flashily dressed, who paid for champagne for everyone in the flat. They were introduced by a perfectly groomed, dark-brown man, a close friend of the boss of the Baltimore. Money seemed worthless, worthless to them, except as a means of getting fun out of it. Madame Suarez made special efforts to please them, showed them all of the buffet, buffet flat, even her own bedroom. One of them was very freckled and red-haired, sat down to the piano and jazzed out popular songs. The trio... Radiated friendliness all around them. Danced with the colored beauties and made lively conversation with the men. They were gay and recklessly spendthrift. So that's kind of interesting. Um, Now the police come and raid the Baltimore, as 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 the chapter implies was going to happen. Chapter implies was going to happen. Well, the white girls they get kind of a special scolding from the judge for being part of this. Place, which is kind of an interesting moment. Quote To the two white girls are also taken in the raid, the judge remarked that it was a pity he had no power to order them whipped, for whipping was the only punishment he considered suitable for white women who dishonored their race by associating with color persons. Alright, so anyways, the that's that's just an example of this threat to African American life in Harlem, um, the the raid. Yet before the night is over, the white men reveal themselves to be vice agents and shut down the Baltimore. Um, so despite being politically connected, the Baltimore would be shut down and some of its proprietors put in jail. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, the I guess the white girls were not part of this vice squad, but the white men who were there were. Uh, quote, the book, a black member of Tammany Meaning, I guess the Democratic Party establishment in New York. A black member of Tammany had no chance against the moral arm of the city. Now, a result of this is a deepening of the color line in Harlem as black owners begin to refuse white patrons, which maybe was partially the intent of the raid in the first place. Chapter 9, Jake Makes a Move. In this chapter, Jake arrives home and determines that Rose has had a white man over. He feels jealousy, although... This is denied in the text in part, and it's it's kind of strange. He smells, I think, cigarette smoke, and and he deduces that a man was here. And he says he's not jealous, but then the subtext of it is he is jealous, and he strikes Rose, feels guilty about later, but he kind of is able to move on. So this becomes yet another excuse for him to move on, just like the fact that he was strike-breaking. So figuratively strike-breaking, so he leaves that job. He finds another man was over at the house and he uses this excuse to leave this relationship and move on and start a new phase in his life so he feels guilt about it though and that's a big thing he doesn't on some level he doesn't really want to leave and he had some happiness with rose it seems Um, but i think we're reaching a theme of the novel with this example of domestic violence it is this inability of our character jake to really transform himself despite his own good intentions he gets drawn to women and then to cabarets and pubs. He never is able to find—I um, don't want to say escape because it's—it's it's almost the opposite. He's not able to find a, a place for himself. And uh, in this case, when you know he's almost driven to—he's driven to violence as a way to kind of escape uh, instead of instead of just improving himself and facing um, this—the opportunities for him in 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 New York. Chapter 10, The Railroad Some time has passed and Jake has gotten a job on the railroad as a cook. Now let's talk about this job for a while in the context of black life in the early 20th century. First, it's mobile. It uses the same technology that fueled the Great Migration, the the railroad itself, moving hundreds of thousands um, of black people from the south to the cities. Second, it was a job that allowed black workers to move around and establish networks throughout the nation. And we're going to see Jake do that, having connections and friends and even girlfriends in Pittsburgh and Philly and other towns. This was, in a way, empowering. And at the very least, it provides opportunities that maybe weren't there for him. And I think maybe that's the good side of this mobility. That's such the a theme of the novel is it, it does create additional spaces. It, it creates outlets. Um Comparative freedom, compared to, uh, to certainly what they compared to what's in the in the South. Uh, in this way, I, I think this novel is a little bit more optimistic about the a- African American communities in the North than Cain was. Cain, which kind of cast doubt on the putting hope either in the South or in the cities. Another thing is, it was a black work environment, but it was in an integrated space. So the, these these chefs, the pantry workers. The porters, these railroad workers, they're they're all black. They're all in a subservient position to all the passengers who are mostly white, right? Street cars, were not street cars, these sleeping cars were segregated as well. I mean, that was the whole point of the Plessy versus Ferguson trial, right? Uh, Homer Plessy, you know, was bought a ticket for the white first class, I think. So they were they were separate cars, but. You know, there's kind of a permanent underclass in the railroads in the form of all these servants. And it was, uh, so it was a black working space. And it, there's networks there. And of course, it's going to be a very powerful union. The Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters is going to be the union that uh, A. Philip Randolph used to push for the March on Washington in 1941, which pushed, or at least the threat of that march, pushed Roosevelt to forced employers to integrate if they wanted government contracts for war industries that's a big event in civil rights history and a Philip Randolph and the brotherhood of sleeping car porters were part of it so i think we should you know kind of dwell on this the importance of the railroad and i, I i'm glad this novel i'm glad mckay explores this as, as a space and gives us a, a window into the characters who dwell there anyways uh A fourth thing to say about it is it was an upwardly mobile opportunity for people who maybe wanted to escape certainly rural environments. Uh, There are hierarchies within there. There are ways to move up into um, higher positions. One of the characters we meet, he's not well liked, but he's the head cook, right? So he's able to to shift up, even though there's still this kind of culture of subservience to the passengers in there. Um, But maybe that's in all service industries. Maybe I'm being too sensitive about it. Anyways, uh, moving on. While working as a railroad cook, Jake meets Ray. Ray is this educated young man who knows a lot about the Caribbean. He knows a lot about black history, and he's eager to talk about it. And Jake begins to learn about the Caribbean, and in particular, Haiti. For the first time, he heard the name Toussaint Louverture, the black slave and leader of the Haitian slaves. Heard how he fought and conquered the slave owners, and then Protected them. Decreed laws for Haiti that held more human wisdom and no, no, nobility than the Code Napoleon. Defended his baby revolution against the Spanish and the English vultures. Defeated Napoleon's punitive expedition and how tragically he was captured by a civilized trick. Taken to France and sent by Napoleon to die brokenhearted in a cold dungeon. He plied his instructor with questions. Heard of Dessalines, who carried on the fight begun by Toussaint Louverture and kept Haiti independent. But it was incredible to Jake that this little island of freed slaves had withstood the three leading European powers. And it goes on for a few pages here, just the the history lessons he gets. He learns about uh, the African-American colony in Africa, Liberia, this republic formed by American blacks. Either, you know, they got out of slavery on their own and they moved there. Many were people who were manumitted in the so-called colonization movement of the pre-Civil War period. But... Um, you know, this was a big part of the African-American mind too. And just re-looking at Africa as a place with its own history, with its own experiences. And then African-Americans thinking about this history as part of their own. And this is is going to be a a theme throughout 20th century black history. It's going to, you know, it's going to shape things like the anti-apartheid movement. It's going to shape African-American support for the anti-colonialist movement. It's going to be part of Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association, right? Uh, that which had as part of its goal a, a formation of a, of, a, of a homeland for the black diaspora. Anyways, there's too much here. It, it covers like four or five pages. There's too much here for me to quote it all, but it's his mind is being open here. Jake's mind is being open to politics. And this is maybe another escape. He had one before, which was a, kind of a settled relationship with a woman um that doesn't work out but now we have politics politics perhaps or education and we're going to see in the coming chapters if that's really a way out for him there is an enlightening moment for jake but it doesn't spark him at this point in any political action the last chapter i'll look at for today is called the snowstorm in philly in this chapter we learn a bit more about the conditions of work for the railroad workers Many of them stay in these kind of low-quality dorms while in Pittsburgh, and at one point I think he's even sleeping in a barn. So they're not—they don't get the best accommodations. This is one reason they—they they kind of want to go out to the, the cabarets and places in the neighborhoods that they that the that the cars are are stopped at. Jake learns a little bit more about this Ray uh, in this chapter. And through this friendship with Ray, we again find that Jake has a chance to materialize a more meaningful life. But for a full development of what those options are and and how our characters end up, particularly how Jake ends up, we're going to have to wait for the next episode. Well, so that does it for this episode. We're about halfway through this novel. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, If you have any comments or suggestions or thoughts, please email them to me. I can be reached at 100 pagescast at gmail.com you can leave comments or share or subscribe i would appreciate it if you did that uh your contributions will help this podcast grow and give me the energy and encouragement to keep going um thank you again for listening so much i will see you in 100 pages and we'll finish up with the second half of home to harlem